for argument. First case for argument this morning, 19-26-21, South Dakota, Donald East versus Minnehaha County et al. Mr. Hendricks. Good morning, Your Honor. Uh, my name is John Hendricks. I'm the attorney for appellant Donald East, and I'm ready to proceed. May it please the court? Yes, proceed. Thank you. Your Honor, we're here on... Uh, Mr. East's appeal of the district court's granting of summary judgment motions and a motion to dismiss in favor of the various appellees. We're asking this honorable court to please uh, review the district court's decision and reverse it in all regards. Donald East has presented credible medical evidence that the defendants in this case were deliberately indifferent to his serious medical needs. That evidence includes those defendants' own progress notes reports, and other medical records. East has established genuine issues of material fact as to whether his constitutional rights guaranteed under the 8th and 14th Amendments were violated. There are various appellees in this case. Uh, I'm going to address the allegations against each of them uh, very briefly. Dr. Heisler and Nurse Osborne uh, are agents of Correct Care Solutions. Correct Care Solutions is an agency that had a contract with Minnehaha County to offer medical care at the Minnehaha County Jail where Mr. East was incarcerated. Uh, Mr. East uh, has had serious issues, medical issues concerning his right foot. Uh, these persisted for a number of years. Uh, on the occasions relevant to Dr. Heisler, Nurse Osborne, and Correct Care Solutions in Minnehaha County. Uh, Mr. East was suffering serious wounds uh, or blisters to his right foot. He repeatedly sought medical attention for these. Uh, despite the persistence of these serious wounds, the efforts that were taken by Dr. Heisler uh, and Correct Care Solutions uh, were unavailing. It's our position that uh, the, uh, Dr. Heisler was deliberately indifferent to how persistent these wounds were and the fact that they were not healing despite the attention that was being paid to them. Dr. Heisler did not refer Mr. East to wound care outside of the, outside of the jail to the local hospital where he would have received treatment he needed. And ultimately, uh, Mr. East was subjected to amputation of the small toe of his right foot as a result of these wounds and the resulting in, in the infection that had resulted. Upon um, returning counsel, how, do, how do you, um, how do we find the line between, let's say a malpractice suit or negligence and deliberate indifference in this case? Because it seems that the record, and I think that Mr. East does not contest the number of times he was seen by the medical folks there um, and the type of care, the wound care, the attention, several trips to a hospital. How do we, how can we tell in this case that this went beyond a claim of malpractice and into a deliberate indifference? Your Honor, I think the record is pretty clear and, and, and the record consists very much of the statements of undisputed material facts and statements of disputed material facts from the parties. But I think that the record is very clear here that Dr. Heisler and Correct Care Solutions uh, downplayed just how serious uh, 
the condition of his foot was. There are a number of uh, instances in the record uh, where Dr. Heisler and Correct Care Solutions uh, assert make assertions about the condition of his foot that differ from what they recorded in their own notes and their medical records. And I think that that illustrates the difference between a simple medical malpractice claim and the deliberate indifference standard here. I also think that uh, just the fact that he was an inmate in the county jail and was being treated by Dr. Heisler uh, uh, and he was, as a result, he was in a more vulnerable position than a number of patients would be, uh, reflects the flat fact that she was deliberately indifferent. Uh, and, but primarily, it's the circumstantial evidence, uh, particularly the records where he continuously points out that there are issues with his foot, that the infection appears to be proceeding. There are other medical professionals who are examining him, Dr. List and Dr. Smith and various nurses who are pointing out that there's an infection and that it's spreading. And then nevertheless, Dr. Heisler and Correct Care Solutions uh, decline to refer him outside of the hospital for additional care. So, so it, it's really a factual issue, I think. And I, I think that's one that's ripe for a finder of fact to rule on and was inappropriate for summary judgment. I'm going to continue uh, with regard to Nurse Osborne, who was also a, a, an employee of Correct Care Solutions. After the amputation, when Mr. Reese returned to the Minnehaha County Jail, uh, he was receiving medication via a PICC line uh, that was in order to avoid additional infection. Uh, Mr. East documented extensive uh, instances of uh, not receiving proper care via that PICC line. At one point, one of the Correct Care Solutions nurses actually dislodged it, resulting in considerable pain. There was an infection that resulted because of the unsanitary conditions uh, surrounding uh, uh, the administration of the medication. Medication was administered in the wrong fashion. The pick line was set up so that medication could only be administered at a certain speed. But at one point, uh, Nurse Osborne actually administered the medication in just a few minutes rather than over the half hour that it was supposed to be. Um, the pick line had to at one point be removed and replaced. And, and, and Mr. E suffered considerably. He made a number of complaints. At one point was actually scolded by Nurse Osborne uh, for making complaints after returning to the after returning from the hospital when the pick line was replaced. So there were uh, a number of instances, and we believe that there is a genuine issue of material fact concerning that. Um, Council is is um, Nurse Osborne was dismissed for failure to serve her. Is that correct? That's correct. We were unable to locate her. <laughs> Uh, after we made several attempts to locate her and serve her, uh, uh, Correct Care Solutions attorney filed a, an affidavit from, Ms., uh, from Nurse Osborne, uh, but at that point it was too late to serve. We did make several attempts to serve her, but we were unable to find a good address. Moving on to uh, our claims against uh, the staff at Mike Durfee State Prison, uh, Shortly after his stay at Mike Durfee State Prison, Mr. East again began uh, suffering problems and severe pain in the same foot. Uh, he made uh, 
he, he was referred for uh, medical attention by a podiatrist in Yankton, South Dakota, Dr. Pedersen. Uh, Dr. Pedersen detected the fact that he had uh, at least two fractures in that right foot, put a cast on uh, Mr. East and uh, left instructions for the penitentiary that he was to be non-weight bearing for two months uh, and was to be confined to a wheelchair. Contrary to the claims uh, of the appellees, uh, it was not a recommendation, but it's very clear from Dr. Pedersen's note that he was to be non-weight bearing and was to uh, be transported around the grounds in a wheelchair. Nevertheless, when uh, Mr. East returned to the penitentiary, uh, physician's assistant Hanvey uh, and other penitentiary staff denied him the use of the wheelchair for most of the time, particularly when it was on his unit. He was confined to crutches, which was against uh, Dr. Pedersen's uh, 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 instructions. And it, as a result, uh, Mr. East actually sprained his ankle uh, he was sent back to Dr. Pedersen. Dr. Pedersen uh, uh, diagnosed the sprained ankle, uh, also noted that another counsel, reason why- Counsel, may yes. I interrupt you? May I interrupt you to yes. ask, uh, because we're getting low on time, would you address the issues against Baker and Goins and particularly the standard we should apply and why that standard favors you? Absolutely. Your Honor, I believe that the standard that should apply, I'm sorry. I know it just disappeared. Well, there's a two-step two and a one-step. Yep, and we're, we're asking the court- two-step we're, we're asking the court to apply the one-step. We think that the two-step is frankly redundant. Uh, the, the, okay, the, the, so, so now how does it favor you? Well, it, it simply simplifies the analysis. Yeah, it only favors- I'm sorry. Uh, please apply it to this case. That's what I'm driving at. Go ahead. I understand. Thank you, Your Honor. In this case, we believe that the one-step analysis permits uh, Mr. East to uh, bring his claim despite the fact that he did not exhaust administrative remedies because a similarly situated inmate of ordinary uh, firmness would have known under those circumstances that if he brought an administrative complaint against Baker and Goins for their conduct, that uh, there would have been retaliation. And we believe this argument is bolstered by the fact that other inmates in the penitentiary related to him that he would be subject to retaliation. So as Counselor, fear are, that the threats, are the threats too vague, too general, no. too normal prison talk? No, I don't think so, because they reflect the reality of the prison, quite frankly. And, and a person in Mr. E's situation isn't going to distinguish between vague or ambiguous threats and direct in-your-face threats. Quite frankly, somebody in Mr. East's position is going to be quite sensibly aware of the context of the th of the context of the threats, the environment, and the circumstances. Is there is there a are, are, is it your position that that the step step two and the two step analysis and the solo step in the other one, are those different, the reasonable inmate of ordinary firmness versus a similarly situated individual? Is it is it your position that that's in any meaningful way different? Well, I, well, I think it is different 
insofar as the first step reflects the current state of the law and what we believe the law should be. The second step just simply places an additional burden on the inmate that's really quite frankly unnecessary and is already connected to the first step. Well, well I guess my, my point is the, the, first, the first analysis, the one from the third, the ninth, the tenth, talks about whether the threat would deter a reasonable inmate of ordinary firmness. And I, if I understand correctly, the, um, the test that you would prefer that we apply is just whether the threats are serious enough to deter a similarly situated individual of ordinary firmness. And, and my question to you is, do you think that those two set out different standards? I do think that they set out different standards because I think that the test that we prefer allows more leeway for facts to be presented uh, in order for the inmate to establish their position. Uh, Counsel, I see you're in your rebuttal, but yes, Judge, I am. were you beginning a question? I just was, uh, is this quite quickly? So oh, no, 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 no. I, I didn't you're... mean you. I was looking at Judge Shepard. Go ahead, Judge oh, Kelly. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. Um, just the, the similarly situated, is that the phrase that you're focused on? Correct. Judge Shepard, I apologize. Judge Shepard, you're fine. Counsel, I, I just have one question. If, if you had to point to the evidence in the case and pick out your best evidence of a threat that's related to the uh, potential filing of an administrative grievance or complaint, what would it be? Well, I think that it would be the fact that the guards took Mr. East to a isolated place when they made the threats and then actually made the threats and taunted him in an isolated place where it wouldn't be observed by uh, other staff or anybody else. I think a reasonable person under those in that situation would know that these guards don't want anybody else to know that they're doing this. They did it away, f they did it in an isolated place, and then they did it again at the hospital off of penitentiary grounds. Uh, okay, well, I guess I'm asking, what's the th what are the words that were used? What, what, what were the threats that you would point to? They did not use explicit words, but in the McBride case, I think it's made very clear that if the threats aren't explicit, they don't have to be explicit as long as a reasonable person of ordinary firmness would understand that retaliation for uh, a complaint is a possibility. So they did not use explicit words to dissuade him from making administrative remedy, but their actions certainly would have done that. Okay, so they took him to an isolated place. What's, what's the, what's the non-explicit words or conduct that you would that you would point to is that is that it that taking him to an isolated place and then threatening him with violence which an ordinary person would understand that they would not want reported to their superiors okay i think that exhausts the question mr Hendricks. we we will give you uh, two minutes uh in rebuttal after the tag team comes along here <laughs> Uh, I appreciate that. Mr. Murphy, you're first. I think you're muted, I think, if you're talking. At least I don't hear you. Thank you for that. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead, proceed. May it please the court, counsel. Uh, my name is Matthew Murphy. I'm here representing Dr. Gene Heisler, one of the appellees in this matter. 
Um, this is my first opportunity to have oral argument before this court, and I'm very honored to be here. Um, Dr. Jean Heisler is a veteran of the medical community in South Dakota. She's been practicing for about 40 years. In relevant part to this case, she was a Center for Family Medicine employee where she was contracted to provide care to Minnehaha County Jail inmates for about four to five hours a week. And in that role is where she crossed paths with Mr. East. Um, the appellees in this case have 15 minutes total. I get four. I'm going first because my client's care timeline was at the beginning and we tried to split, to split this up chronologically. Uh, so I'm gonna kind of dive right into things. Um, Judge Lang made a very thorough review of the record at the district court level and he issued a very extensive and reasonable and well thought out decision on this issue. Uh, his ultimate determination with regard to my client, Dr. Heisler, was that the evidence even taken in a favor, in a light most favorable to the non-moving party, the plaintiff, did not display the level of deliberate indifference or criminal recklessness that needs to be shown to demonstrate that she acted that way towards a uh, serious medical condition that Mr. East had. Um, this court could affirm his decision based on those grounds and we would ask that you do so. This court could also affirm his decision on other arguments I've made in the brief, namely that the claim against Dr. Heisler is barred by the statute of limitations. The claim against Dr. Heisler does not pass the subjective slash objective test for deliberate indifference in that Dr. Heisler did not have a subjective awareness of an objectively serious medical need. And I think the evidence bears that out in the way she reacted to what she saw during this treatment timeline. And um, the plaintiff has failed to put forth uh, any medical expert testimony to support the causation or the standard of care elements that should be in this record to demonstrate that my client, Dr. Heisler, acted with deliberate indifference. You agree there could be some obvious, you know, broken leg and bone sticking out stuff that wouldn't sure. require an expert. Yeah. I would, I would, Your Honor. I think in this case, though, you're dealing with osteomyelitis. Dr. Heisler affied that she has seen it two to three times in her 40-year career in a non-diabetic inmate or a non-diabetic patient. It's, it's a rare, uh, rare occurrence. Um, certainly he had a blister and it was slow healing. Um, the medical records demonstrate that. But what they also demonstrate is a care team which included multiple physicians, multi a nurse practitioner, and nurses seeing him almost every day where they were treating what they saw. And in specific to Dr. Heisler, she saw him on seven or eight occasions during this time period. Um, she consistently made medical judgments as to what needed to be done with regard to his blister. Uh, that included changing the wound care that he was receiving, changing the type of gauze that was being used, allowing uh, antibiotics time to work, and the care team actually used three different types of antibiotics on five different treatment courses. This is not the type of case uh, uh, that your honors have been involved with in the, in the past where there's a clear medical need that's completely ignored. It's not like the Dad versus Anoka case that you wrote, Judge Kelly, or the Williams versus York case. It's more like the cases cited in the brief, the Scott versus Benson case, which I know Judge Shepard and Judge Kelly sat on, the Logan versus Clark case, the Jones versus Minnesota DLC Castle, case. thank you for your argument, Mr. Tettenborn. Thank you.
Thank you. May it please the court. Travis Tuttenborn on behalf of the Appley Correct Care Solutions, the district court's order granting summary judgment in favor of Correct Care Solutions should be affirmed because the court properly concluded that the facts of Mr. Eads' medical treatment at the county jail did not meet the well-established standard for deliberate indifference under the Eighth Amendment. CCS did employ the nurses who were providing medical care and treatment to Mr. East each day at the county jail. As it concerns the nurses, there are a few material facts that I'd like to emphasize in my limited time that support the district court's determination under settled principles in the Eighth Circuit. As it concerns the pre-surgery timeline, the record establishes there was no initial delay in Mr. East undergoing evaluation by a physician. He first complained of an issue with his right foot on a Saturday. He was seen that same day by a CCS nurse, and he was scheduled to be seen by the physician the following Monday, and he was seen. From the time that daily wound care was started on Mr. East's right foot and over the course of a five-and-a-half-month time frame, CCS nurses provided and documented providing daily wound care, which included unwrapping the covering for the wound, observing the wound, cleaning the wound, and then treating it depending on the physician's orders at the time with either triple antibiotic ointment, petroleum jelly, or a 50-50 mix of hydrogen peroxide and water. And they did this daily. Now, Mr. East contends in his briefing that there are three days out of, by my count, a 163-day period in which daily wound care is not documented, and therefore it did not occur. Giving Mr. East, or construing this in the light most favorable to Mr. East, this fact is immaterial because 160 out of 163 days of daily observation and wound care treatment does not raise a material question of fact as to whether the nurses were deliberately indifferent to the condition of Mr. East's right foot pre-surgery. Concerning the post-surgery timeline, when Mr. East returned from his six-day hospitalization, he was placed in medical observation housing where he was able to be seen by the nurses each day, and they were able to administer his daily dose of intravenous antibiotics, which included two antibiotics, daptomycin and ceftriaxone, or commonly known as recepin, via his PICC line. They did this once daily. He received the doses as ordered over the course of six weeks. Mr. East was prescribed pain medication initially three times a day, and that prescription changed as his complaints changed over the course of the six weeks. Mr. East was given weekly lab draws on every Monday over the course of the six weeks, which were altered in accordance with the orders from the specialist that he saw at the local hospital. He was sent to his surgical follow-up appointments as ordered by his specialist, and he was sent to the local emergency department three times in the six-week period in response to his various complaints. 
overall over this six week period mr east was transferred out for evaluation your time has expired mr gagan thank you may please the court counsel due to the obvious time constraints i don't propose to go into detail as to the specific medical care provided to inmate east following his transfer to the mdsp in april 2014. It seems perhaps the simplest and easy way to respond to the allegations raised by inmate East would be to do so defendant by defendant. As the court knows, there are, in connection with the medical care provided MDSP, three named state defendants. They are Warden Robert Dooley, Unit Coordinator Brian Foley, and PA Michael Hanvey. Since PA Hanvey is the only health care professional of the three, I would, with the court's permission, start with him. As the district court properly found the claim against Hanby, and I quote, relates to East conflict with PA Hanby over the use of crutches for short distance transfers instead of the use of a wheelchair for the approximate two month period when his foot was in a cast. Counsel, you have so little time, because of the way you've done this argument, which I've never seen in 16 years, uh, you have so little time. Would you please address the test here as to Baker and Goins? Yes, I, the, the state would advocate that the court adopt the two-part test, uh, subjective and an objective prong. Uh, as we've argued in a brief, uh, under the two-part test, in order to satisfy the objective prong, the threat uh, or alleged threat of retaliation has to be shown under circumstances to be reasonable. In this particular case, the state would submit that Mr. East cannot satisfy that burden. I would point out that there is no credible evidence in the record to establish that the alleged threats ever indeed took place. Well, counsel, counsel, we, we assume the facts favorable to the, to the plaintiff here. Go ahead. Okay. But I would we point out the, fact the, the, truth. the Supreme Court says many cases. Go ahead. Right. But the fact of the matter is inmate East alleges that one of the reasons that he didn't report the alleged threats was out of fear that the institution would either delete or destroy the video evidence. I would like the state would like to simply point out that by failing to bring the alleged threats to the attention of prison administrators, East denied them the opportunity to either review said videotape and or to preserve the same. Under the objective test, the state would argue that the district court properly found that inmate East failed to offer any justification for his failure to exhaust his administrative remedies. There is no specific reference in the alleged threats that even remotely relate in any way whatsoever to the use of the grievance system. If you look at the brief filed by inmate East, he readily acknowledges that he frequently contacted Warden Dooley in reference to his complaints. And at no point, okay, was he ever threatened, okay, retaliation as a result of the use of that grievance process. So you're arguing kind of a causation point. Yes, both that and like, you know, it's properly found by the district court he didn't satisfy the objective test by putting on evidence. There was no connection between the alleged threats, the alleged actions of Baker and Goins to the grievance process itself. There's no way under the circumstances a reasonable inmate could perceive the alleged statements 
as a threat not to file a grievance. There's simply no credible connection between the two. Okay, and we're not judging credibility here again, but I won't toy with you on that. Your time has expired, Mr. Gigan. And so then we're to Ms. Cook. Ms. Cook. Thank you, Your Honor. Sorry, just waiting for them to give me my minute and 30 seconds. Uh, yeah, it says 0 30. Ms. Smith, please set it at 1 30. clock is not cooperating. We'll spend more than a minute 30 on that, but don't you worry about it. We'll give you the minute 30 somehow, some way. We'll give, uh, we'll give the people in St. Louis one second to get 130 up there. If it doesn't work, we'll do a minute and we'll guess after that. <laughs> I even have a cell phone, so it's not impossible for us to do this. Close, but not impossible. I'm happy to do the same, Your Honor. I have very little to say. No, 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 no. Uh, Miss Smith, why don't you set it at a minute, and then I'll keep the 30 seconds on the stopwatch here. So, uh, Miss Cook, go ahead, but realize you're going to get 30 extra seconds. Thank Proceed. you, Your Honor. Uh, good morning. May it please the court and counsel. My name is Caitlin Cook, and I represent defendant Brad Adams in this lawsuit. The issue to be decided by this court is slightly different than the other defendants in that the issue here is whether the district court erred in dismissing East's complaint against defendant Adams for failure to state a claim. In looking at East's complaint, it's different as well from the other defendants in that it only has two specific factual allegations with regard to the care provided by defendant Adams. And even assuming these facts to be true, as is required by the court in determining whether to dismiss a complaint for failure to state a claim, these still cannot sustain a claim for deliberate indifference against defendant Adams. First, deliberate indifference requires that uh, the plaintiff have objectively severe medical needs. Defendant Adams treated him once for ankle pain and once for foot pain. And neither of these are objectively severe in that neither is likely to uh, procure death degeneration, or extreme pain. Uh, similarly, even if this court were to find that the complaint states an objectively severe medical need, the complaint is completely devoid of any factual allegation to support the conclusory allegation that defendant Adams was aware of subjectively and deliberately disregarded that need, and certainly not to the level of criminal recklessness necessary to sustain a claim for this. Uh, with that being said, Your Honor, I would respectfully request on behalf of Defendant Adams that this court affirm the ruling of the district court. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ms. Cook, and you're right on time, too. Uh, and so, finally, uh, Mr. Gary. Good morning. Uh, may it please the court. Uh, my name is Bill Gary. I represent Minnehaha County. Uh, as uh, I don't mean to uh, repeat, uh, but I will piggyback on the arguments of Dr. Heisler and uh, correct care solutions, but uh, as, as has been noted, the district court conducted a lengthy and detailed examination of the course of treatment provided to Mr. East at the Minnehaha County Jail and concluded that his care at the jail for any serious medical need failed to meet the deliberately indifferent standard. In the absence of any underlying unconstitutional act of deliberate indifference to Mr. East's serious medical needs, while incarcerated at our jail, the county simply cannot be held liable under uh, 
1983. Uh, uh, and moreover, uh, since Mr. East uh, was not subject to deliberate indifference to the serious medical needs, uh, his complaint for deliberate indifference based on the county's um, customs, practices, and policies also fails. And uh, for those reasons, I would again um, uh, join in the arguments of Dr. Heisler and Correct Care Solutions and respectfully request that this court affirm the district court's grant of summary judgment to Minnehaha County. Thank you very much. Okay, Mr. Hendricks, as I promised you, we will give you two minutes. Uh, and Thank so you, we're, we're back to you, I'm pretty sure. Go ahead. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, with respect to Dr. Heisler's argument that there's no evidence that she had a subjective awareness of the seriousness of the condition, the court can take into consideration Dr. Heisler's access to his medical records, including the wound care worksheets that obviously demonstrated that the wound was not healing. And the fact that she persistently ignored the clear evidence that his condition was worsening. Uh, these were things that were noted by other members of her team, other doctors who, who were examining Mr. East, the nurses, one of the nurses indicated as, as far back as June, uh, a, a month and a half before he had his surgery that he should have been seen at the hospital much sooner, but Dr. Heisler was her superior and so there was nothing that she could do about it. Uh, the circumstantial evidence certainly indicates that Dr. Heisler uh, had to have had subjective awareness if she was doing any sort of rudimentary review of his condition. The fact that she continued to treat him uh, and persisted in the same treatment of him is not evidence that we sh she was not subjectively aware of the seriousness of the condition. To say otherwise would be a tautology. The fact that she continued to treat him without taking the extra necessary steps is really what's uh, what's key here. The, the necessary steps would have been referring him outside, which she deliberately declined to do. The, I also want to take up the Baker and Goins issue very briefly. Uh, I, we think that there is evidence that there was a connection between Mr. East's failure to report their conduct to, to uh, uh, their superiors and the threats, as evidenced by the fact that Mr. East told his father about the episode. Mr. And his Hendricks, father made it because I was so tough on the other side, I've got to be tough on you, and that will conclude the argument. And uh, case number 19-2621 is submitted for decision by the court. Uh, Ms. Smith, please.